You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to episode 115 of Belaboured. In this episode, we are talking to Jane McLevy with her new book, No Shortcuts, talking about challenges of labor organizing today and looking at how far the movement has come and where it's going. First, we'd like to give you a gentle reminder to consider becoming a sustainer of Belabored. We've been heartened over the years to receive positive feedback and great story ideas from our listeners, and now we're asking you to put your money where your mouth is. Your monthly donation of $3, 5 or $10 will go a long way to help support us into the future. And of course, we hate bugging you for your money directly, so we've conveniently labeled our subscription levels after our favorite labor heroes. For $3 monthly, you're Eugene Debs. For $5 a month, you're a Lucy Parsons sustainer with a free tote bag. And for our deluxe Pauline Newman level, you get the tote and an online subscription. And of course, whatever you give, it helps keep belabored, self-sustaining, independent, and free for all the masses. To become a member, you can go to dissentmagazine.org slash belabored membership. And now the news. So the longest lunch line in Harvard history finally came to an end on Tuesday night with a tentative settlement between the Dining Hall Workers Union and the university administration. The exact terms of the tentative agreement are still not fully clear, but it appears they've settled over the two major impasses. First, the university had insisted on restructuring the union's health care plan and the workers were set for a huge rate hike. Uh, That seems to have been settled. In addition, the workers had demanded a $35,000 annual wage. All in all, the most remarkable thing about the strike isn't the final deal, perhaps, but the actions leading up to it. Students had staged two walkouts in solidarity with the strikers. They'd put up with weeks of having to get their meals off campus, and they did a lot of disruption on campus, too, in solidarity with the workers. The activists from the Student Labor Action Movement were especially active, and they were turning out in droves to pick it alongside them throughout the strike. According to the Crimson, earlier this week, more than 500 students walked out of class in the second walkout of the strike, and that lasted well into the evening until the police broke it up. And as of this recording on Wednesday, the tentative agreement will be finalized and sent to the union for a vote. This was the first strike at Harvard in about three decades, and it goes along with a wave of other recent campus labor actions across the country that have been led by faculty, staff, adjuncts, and graduate student workers some in a union, some agitating for a union. As we reported in our last episode, the workers were no doubt able to leverage the groundswell of grassroots support from everyone on campus, as well as many of the fellow workers in the Cambridge area who are also facing precarious work and the rising cost of living. The dining services workers, represented by Unite Here Local 26, together managed to push back against a wave of austerity that Harvard has forced upon many of its other non-union employees in recent years. And with any luck, they will start to turn the tide for labor across the entire campus and maybe across higher education as a whole. Last week, some 5,000 faculty members of the Association of Pennsylvania State College and University Faculties went on strike. Those faculty members teach at 14 different campuses in the Pennsylvania State University system, which is spread across the entire state. The two-day strike resulted in significant student support and a tentative deal that holds the line against the increased use of adjuncts and other changes to the university system. 
I checked in with Jamie L. Phillips, professor of philosophy and past president of the faculty union at Clarion University of Pennsylvania and chair of that university's faculty senate to hear how the strike went. Tell us about the strike. What led to it and how was it resolved? We were without a contract, working without a contract for over 180 days. Mm-hmm. And um, this, the state system was trying to make major changes to our CBA. We have actually a very, very good CBA. Mm-hmm. And uh, the changes they're making were going to be detrimental in terms of education. So they wanted to greatly increase the number of temporary faculty at the university. They wanted to right. increase their workload and or decrease their pay. Uh, right. It would be a de facto pickup for all those faculty because most of them are temp faculty. Right. Um, they teach four classes when they're full-time, but they always have them teaching three, so they aren't getting benefits. Now it's an attempt to make them teach five classes to be full-time, but in fact, of course, they'd only be giving them four classes. So right. they give them more work um, for the same amount of pay or less work, uh, less pay for the same amount of work. And um, they also want to have graduate students teaching classes at the university, and that wasn't going to be acceptable to us. I mean, the, the main thing that we had was I look at the CBA as like a choice moving forward a choice that's going to affect the rest of the university system for 30, 40 years because it's hard to change the contract once it gets put into the contract. And it was going to be a massive change to the type of education the students received. Right. We've been, I, I think we've been leading up to this strike for a very long time. Over the last you know, 15 years, right. we've had major uh, reductions in the amount of money that the state system receives. And so we've had declining resources to the students. And I was telling the students just today that the education that they received Today is not as good as the education they would have received 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Yeah. And um, that's because they don't have the same classes. They don't have so many faculty. And yet they're paying more and more for their education. And what they were trying to do was make it even worse. And so instead of trying to bring back money to the state system, right. provide um, opportunities for more faculty, they were going to be um, cutting salaries. This is the state university system in Pennsylvania. But can you explain how the system works for people who are not familiar with it? I think a lot of people are thinking like oh. Penn State or what's the. Sure. It's, 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 it's a state system and it's and it's it's owned by the state of Pennsylvania. So right. all the 14 schools in the system are literally owned by the state of Pennsylvania. They're run through a system called the chancellor's office. Here's where we have board of governors that hires a chancellor and oversees the, the, the state system itself. And the Board of Governors are a political body appointed by members of the legislature who are approved by the governor. And um, each university is within that system with mostly autonomy in terms of what they do locally, but the tuition is set at the state level. Uh, a lot of decisions are made at the state level. And there's been an increased um, uh, takeover of power by the state system over the course of the last 20, 30 years since the system came into being right. in the early 1980s. So that's how the system's set up, but each university is mostly autonomous in terms of how it functions, but we all work underneath the same contract, all 14 schools underneath the same CBA. Right. So we have about 5,500 faculty, depending on how you count them, across all 14 universities. Yeah, and that's geographically spread across the state of Pennsylvania as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah exactly right. So we've got, we've got schools near Philadelphia, schools near uh, Pittsburgh, we have schools in the north, schools in the south. We're located here at Clarion, I guess what you call West Central PA. What were some of the challenges of, of trying to go on strike with that many people coordinated that broadly across the state? I think part of it is, is that having served on the negotiations committee at the state level, um, the, the challenge is simply making sure that everybody's on board, that we understand the need for it. I guess one benefit of having such a long period of time where we were without a contract is we had lots of opportunity to get the word out to faculty that they understood what the issues were 
Um, they understood that this was an issue not about you know healthcare and about compensation, um, but about general general quality of education issues. And so we have a very uh, functional you know, uh, uh, union at the state level. The local chapter president served on the negotiations committee itself. That was a structural change we made in the 2000s. So the people who are going to be determining whether or not you go on strike or the people that are your chapter presidents. And, right. and so the chapter presidents are tied in immediately to the negotiations team. They oversee the work of our negotiations team. And um, there's a clear funnel between the state and between the local chapters. And so everybody's on board um, because um, the person that we hired or the person we picked and chose to be our president is the one that's getting the information to us. And so there's not a lack of trust. We have a, uh, in previous iterations, we had a lack of trust where the state union was sort of separated out from the local chapters, but we took mm -hmm. care of that and with some structural uh, refinements of our bylaws. And um, uh, now it's a, it's, we have a straight funnel to the top. And so I think everybody's on, on board because they got clear information or the state president goes around providing new information. We have people that are delegates to what's called a legislative assembly and those delegates are appointed um, and um, voted on here locally, but they go to a state assembly and they have regular meetings, um, sometimes four or five meetings a year. And so we've got lots of people who are involved at both the local level, who are also involved at the state level, yeah. making sure that we've got clean communication lines, that we're all on the same page, we all recognize what the issues are. And that allows for a uniformity of, of movement in terms of how the faculty respond. And so I think by the time the strike was about to hit and we were all hoping it wouldn't, um, we were all prepared. Um, we prepared locally for the, the picket lines. We'd already set that up. We'd done that in the past because we'd had, we'd had situations where we had strike authorization votes in the past. And so we were reasonably well practiced at that. And then when it came out, we all just did the work. And, yeah. um, and we all came together in a, in, a, in a grander fashion than I really ever expected. I was concerned that it wouldn't all play out the way it should, but it did. We yeah. had complete buy-in by the faculty to recognize how important this was. Tell us about the resolution of the strike. Well, the resolution was all on the backs of the students. And so without any question whatsoever, it's because of our students that we were able to resolve the strike. My theory behind the whole um, nature of the changes to be made, not only was it an attempt to really subvert the contract but, and to make education um, really, really cheap, but in a bad way for the students, I think it was a, the, the chance it was really um, desirous of achieving a major political coup by either breaking our faculty union yeah. um, or by get, creating major concessions to him. Um, so that, because he knew he was, his time here was short. He's, he's a Republican and he's got the Democratic governor now. Uh, I think he realized that his time was, uh, there's new appointments to the Board of Governors coming up. I think he knew that he wasn't going to last much longer and he has a very lucrative job. Right. And I think that this was a political ploy by him to um, uh, move on to a, a, a presidency someplace at some private university and make even more money. But it didn't play out the way he thought because um, on Wednesday and on Thursday of the strike, the students came out in force. Yeah. And so not only did the faculty come out, which I think he didn't think was going to happen, the students came out uh, in major force to support us. And it was uh, one of the most gratifying experiences of my life to see that because they really, and I told them that so many times today and so many times over the course of the last week that um, they made the difference. And it yeah. was a very enabling experience for the students. They got to see that. When they speak with one voice, they can be powerful because the governor listened. Uh, we had um, maneuverings behind the scenes because they wouldn't go back to the negotiations table. We're working to the governor's office. We were able to work directly with the board of governors and members of the board of governors to get a tentative agreement passed. 
but it's because the student support came out fierce and fast and furious and um, it made it happen for us. That was Jamie Phillips of Clarion University. At the outer edge of Europe and at the outskirts of the Middle East, Turkey has received tens of thousands of refugees from Syria and other countries over the years, many of them young children. Europe has somehow deemed it a safe country for sending many of the migrants it has rejected for refugee resettlement. But the lives that children are living in Turkey is anything but safe, according to a new BBC News investigation. It shows that child labor is rife in the country's underground factories. Many of these facilities are producing brand-name clothing to be sold in British stores. After interviewing several children and families involved in the system, the BBC reports, quote, some of them are being paid a little over one pound an hour, well below the Turkish minimum wage. A 15-year-old boy said that he wanted to be in school but could not afford to not work. So he was spending more than 12 hours a day ironing clothes that are then shipped to the UK. When the auditors arrive, they are hidden out of sight. And it's a sadly familiar story. The children would, of course, rather be in school, and their parents would rather put them in school. But the barriers to employment, as well as education for refugee families, have thrust the children into a daily struggle to survive. Many of them can't even find work and spend their days roaming the streets looking for anything that can help sustain them and their families. BBC reports, quote, Our evidence confirms that big fashion brands are profiting from refugees and their children, all of the brands involved say they are completely opposed to child labor and any exploitation of Syrian refugees, but our investigation shows they sometimes don't know how or where their clothes are being made. As with fashion brands that are producing in sweatshops across Asia, the brands rely heavily on contracted factories, which then subcontract out to smaller producers, which generally adhere even less to the law and much less to the corporate ethical sourcing standards that companies often tout to their consumers. Auditors, meanwhile, which are also commissioned by the industry, tend to rubber stamp and gloss over some of these violations in their perfunctory inspections. The government seems similarly incompetent at coping with the huge refugee influx. The BBC reports that it's estimated that as many as 400,000 children are working, many of them in the garment industry. Still, the EU continues to send its unwanted migrants back to Turkish encampments and other refugee ramshackle housing settlements where their parents have no opportunity for decent work, no way of surviving unless their children are pushed into the underground economy. And the problem will only get worse as the EU fractures from within and the crisis in Syria continues to build. One of my pet peeves in recent years has become the endless need to frame labor articles and books through the lens of Will X Save the Labor Movement? Longtime organizer and newly minted PhD Jane McAlevey's new book is a corrective to that framework. It is titled No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, and it is out now from Oxford University Press. Jane joined us this week to talk about the book, Service Workers' Role in the Struggle, What's Wrong with Saul Alinsky, and How the McCarthy Era Killed Good Organizing, among many other things. So your new book is titled No Shortcuts, and you stress throughout it that there is a difference between organizing, as we should understand it, and mobilizing, as a lot of unions and movements do today. Can you explain for our listeners what the difference is? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, for me, it's sort of, I think I say in the opening chapter of the new book, that this is a, this question is essentially my um, obsession right now in the movement, yeah. because I think there's such a misunderstanding about the distinction between the two. So at the at the root of what I'm trying to both explain, argue, passionately call for is a return to what I call a back to basics organizing approach in the work that we do. By which I mean the following few things: one that we literally wake up in the morning focused on majorities, like the majorities of people in our society, not minorities. And I certainly don't mean people of color, who, by the way, are majorities anyway, where I live, every city I'm in. But, you know, I mean, I mean, like, actually, do we wake up in the morning assuming that we actually have to try and figure out a strategy to talk to the people who don't talk to us, who are in the majority in the country, who are not in dialogue with, who are not on our Facebook pages, who may not be listening to this podcast, like who aren't listening to the regular vehicles that sort of progressives or leftists are using um, when we talk at people. So for, for me, what organizing, and I'll come to what mobilizing, I think, has means and where the confusion is. For me, organizing makes a few assumptions. First, that we're explicitly talking to people who aren't talking to us, that we're trying to engage the majority of people in this country who are not at all yet convinced that they're part of something called our movement. They don't self-identify in the morning when they wake up as like, hey, what am I going to do today to change the world? They may wake up in the morning and try and figure out, what do I have to do to deal with my bad boss? What do I have to to do to deal with the fact that I didn't get a promotion yesterday because I'm black and they got me somehow in the merit increase, stupid rulemaking they were using at the workplace, as opposed to the white person next to me who got her full merit increase of 2% for reasons that seem really racist. The worker may be getting up to think about that, but she's not getting up yet to figure out how to change the world, although we hope that that becomes part of the discussion later. So organizing is about focusing on the majority of people who are not yet with us. It means engaging them face-to-face, not by Twitter and Facebook. It means creating a space in a conversation for people themselves to self-discover and come to the realization about how the world works and the impression in it. Whereas for me, mobilizing, which is most of what we've been doing for most of my lifetime, unfortunately, assumes that the people that we're talking to are already with us. It assumes that they basically understand there's something wrong with hyper-greedy, vicious U.S. capitalism. It assumes that they understand sort of that there's something wrong with the power structure, that you know the so-called free market has way too much power in this country, and that we should be doing something to try and tame it, though that something is generally rather obtuse in the mobilizing model. But So mobilizing is about talking to people who are already with us. It's about sort of perfecting uh, turnout mechanisms and machines um, and how to get bodies to rallies and sort of just counting bodies at rallies and, you know, whether or not someone gets arrested, that might be cool, or if we get like a social. So to me, like the grand confusion of what's been happening in the country is that we have shifted from what has worked to build powerful successful movements in America, in the trade union movement and in the civil rights movement, and we've shifted into a really activist-oriented mobilizing model. And I think the evidence is clear. It doesn't work. Like, mobilizing alone isn't going to get us to the promised land or return us even to um, a place that we need to be, which is where we're actually building really serious power at the base level. One of your key ideas in the book is that in a lot of organizing today, what you call mobilizing, there isn't really a structural analysis of how power dynamics play out in the workplace on a day-to-day basis in the worker's own life, like in their experience. 
Can you talk about how unions are short-sighted when it comes to conceptualizing how workers perceive and how they use power in the workplace? There's a simple fact that has always been true and it's still true, which is the only strategic advantage that the working class has in any fight are raw numbers, essentially. You know, that when you think about what the 99% slogan meant, if you think about it in real terms and not as a slogan, like the strategic advantage of the working class, the strategic advantage, whether that was black people campaigning in the civil rights movement, which was also working class movement, right, or whether it was the trade union movement in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, our strategic advantage is majorities. And our strategic advantage is our ability to actually stop production or slow production or outnumber the boss and outlast them in struggles. And so when we are not clear with people from day one, like in the opening conversations in a union struggle about what it's going to take to win, and if we're not clear that it's going to take a supermajority of your coworkers standing together to actually get anything done here, if we don't lead with a super clear power analysis that I think has always been true and is still true, then we shortchange every subsequent part of the conversation with ordinary workers about how anything is going to change. So what's been passing for strategy, I think, for certainly the last, I'm really focused on the last 20 years. That's what I was really trying to look at systematically in the new book, just to like check myself and check myself from just being someone in the field to being someone looking around at a ton of campaigns and trying to figure out were the hunches I had as an organizer going to bear out. And I think that they do in terms of the evidence. But So I I think that we start off by acting like all we need are a few clever workers with really good stories that when we present them to the media or to testify at the state legislature or at the city council meeting or whatever it is, they're like really compelling, they're terrific stories, we're we're sort of obsessed about finding the worker who has the perfect story. And then what's going to really happen is a bunch of sophisticated staff are going to be running an agenda behind the scenes in what's called off-the-record meetings with the employers, and they're going to be running quiet meetings that are sort of deal-cutting meetings with elected leaders and state legislators or city council members or members of Congress. And they're going to actually think they can, like, out-clever, like we can get to some reasonable accommodation on wage disparities or something by just having perfect stories that create this thing called narrative change as if that's a strategy to power, which what I'm arguing in the book is that may get us some small change. That that may work for small change. It's not going to address the fundamental inequality of power in American society. And the only way to address that is by returning to a strategy that says, if we can build to serious majorities and hold them, and workers can actually make the decision to walk out together and strike with real majorities, and they can outlast the boss campaign against them, we win. Workers still win. It's still happening. So part of what I think happened is, you know, when McCarthyism, when a whole bunch of things came along in the 50s after the real strength of the original labor movement in this country in the 30s and 40s, they had a class strategy, class theory of power, which was right. If we could strike and build to majorities and have strikes, we can win. And we were doing that for a while. And then this accommodationist model began. It's a long, complicated story, but in, in essence, it begins around World War II. And once unions surrender the idea that we had to be able to hold super-majority strikes, meaning a super-majority of workers walk off, because that's what's effective. As soon as we surrendered the idea that we had to do that, what I'm arguing went out with it was the very, like, skill set about how we actually do that, that for 50 years, most unions haven't been really bothering to figure out how to build 
to a supermajority strike, and so therefore if we don't attempt to try and build to that, A, we're never going to build it, and B, there's a whole skill set, there's a whole craft in the field of organizing that's been really seriously surrendered for many decades, and there are very few organizers in the field right now, like relatively speaking to like the general activist community or to people who call themselves organizers, like there's actually very few places where people have this skill set of building majorities and walking people past their fear and having them begin to themselves self-discover that the only way to salvation is by them themselves acting collectively with their coworkers. It's a pretty simple equation of power, and I just think we've gotten really, really far away from it. So you were just talking about the the importance of a strike, um, and in the book, a couple of the examples that you use are strikes by teachers and other care workers. Can you talk about why it's important even for those workers to engage in strikes? The same thing I say to workers every day, which is, look, the boss doesn't need you. They can get on just fine without you. What they do need is all of you cooperating, and if all of you team up and stop cooperating with them, then you can actually make real changes. I mean, most of my own organizing work has been focused on what I call mission-driven workers. Um, Mission-driven meaning that they wake up in the morning, and the primary motivation uh, for their work choices are about, you know, taking care of kids or taking care of patients or et cetera. Like there's a serious mission to the nature of the work that they're doing. Some people in the movement, I think, use that as an excuse to, like, write off, like, you know, well, care workers want to engage in serious struggle. For, I mean, we just know that's not true. If you start with Chicago and you look at many other recent strikes, it's just not true. But also it's like I think the basic equation of power doesn't change. I think when we, we have to say to people, here's unfortunately how labor law, which I prefer to call management law, but, like, here's, here's how the LRA works. Here's how the structure of power works, if I'm talking to any worker. The setup is this. The boss doesn't need any one of you. The boss needs all of you. And the sooner all of you figure that out and get together and figure out how to team up and club up together, the sooner you're going to be making the kind of changes that you want and be able to take care of the kids and the patients and whoever it is you're taking care of that much faster, that much better. And so I'm I'm watching it, right, because, I mean, I I go in and out of being in the field all the time, like being engaging with thousands of workers all the time. So it's like I just have been through a bunch of these discussions recently again. And what's interesting to me is – The more clear I am as an organizer, the more straightforward I am, the more I treat ordinary workers as grown-ups, the more I'm like, hey, no bullshit here. It's going to take a lot to win, and here's what it's going to take. People are like, oh, thanks for being that clear. Okay. Like, thanks for the tip. This was ironic to me, and I've spent a lot of time with a lot of unions, and so it's it's not just ironic. It's infuriating and sad and all sorts of things. But our movement dulls down what we think the capacity is of people to do. And that's the fundamental problem with the work right now. It's like when we don't think, when we don't take ordinary workers' intelligence and capacity to figure out what's wrong and, and that if, they're, if, if the fight is explained to them yeah. in clear-eyed, simple, grown-up, truthful, honest ways, like people actually understand what's in front of them and the choices they have to make. And part of what real organizers do is we say to people, look, you can choose not to do X, Y, and Z, but I just want to be super clear. You're going to keep paying 500 bucks a month for dependent coverage coming out of your paycheck to your health care bill. So it's totally up to you and your coworkers. If you want to pull off this strike because you want to change that, I can coach you on the series of things you have to do. If, on the other hand, you know, you're willing to live with like a $500 a month deduction for you and your kids for family care, that's okay. I'm, I'm just painting the choice about the following 10 things have to be done 
to change that or to win staffing ratios or to win any number of things you want. And I want to be super clear, it's your place. I'm not working here. It's your decision. But here's what the steps are if you want to do that. And here's what actually has worked historically and still works so that it's a choice. And I have never in my life, (laughs) through a lot of organizing work, like had workers say, nah, we're just going to sit this one out, Mac Levy. We're cool with shitty staffing ratios. We have no retirement. Like, no, that, that actually isn't my experience of the choice that workers make. They make really hard choices, and they're willing to make them. But it requires people doing the work to treat workers like grown-ups and have really mature conversations with them. And I just think our movement spends a whole lot of time dumbing down people and making assumptions that they're not as smart as they are. So you write about, in this book and the previous book, about the concept of what you call whole worker organizing. Can you talk about what this is and how it's different from what people often think of as sort of community labor alliances? Yeah. To me, it's some of the most fun part of the work, actually. (laughs) I mean, I think all organizing, no matter how sleepless it is and hard it is, is is fun because usually we're winning. So, and to me, that's a a part that has also been playing out in some recent campaigns I've been involved in, and it's so great when we get to that stage. So it's like, to me, the sort of, the idea of community labor alliances, like part of what I've been arguing, and you're right, in definitely both my books, is like, even just saying, like the hyphenated idea of a community labor alliance, to me, third parties, workers in the trade union movement in their own communities, just for starters. By which I mean, it's as if workers don't live in the community when we say that, right? So it's like workers actually do live in the community. So the first principle of good organizing is not to third party the workers in the workplace, right? So in in an anti-union campaign, when the the employer is putting out messaging saying, you know, we don't need a third party here, meaning we don't need a union, the job of good union organizers is to be like, yeah, no, the union is the workers. That's all we are. Like there is no third party here, mofo, right? Like the workers are the union. So you get some people who have that same grasp of how to not third party yourself in the workplace, then run straight out the door and create like something called a community labor alliance. When I look at a worker, every worker I look at and talk to, I don't just see a worker. I see a complicated, uh, textured person with a really interesting life, And as a good organizer, I think I find out all sorts of stuff about their non-work life in addition to their work life in every conversation I have with them. Like good organizers in just pure workplace organizing, they will find out all sorts of things about the workers' workplace relationships that become essential to our ability to help them, to coach them, to build the power they need inside the workplace, right? Who's related to who? Who carpools with who? Who hates who? Who had an affair with whoever's wife? Like there's a lot we need to know about every worker in a workplace fight if we want to actually help them build the power and win, right? So to me, I just I carry the same curiosity And I would call what good organizers do is it's like a systematic curiosity. Like I carry my systematic curiosity about that worker's life into a second whole conversation. I don't just say, what are all those relationships that you hold in and among the coworkers at work? I want to know. And so when you punch the clock and go home, are you a churchgoer? Do your kids play Little League? Do you make crafts? Are you in a quilters group? There's all these things that workers do, even really busy ones. I hear the following from organizers all the time, and it makes me kind of batshit crazy when I'm doing trainings. Like, they're too busy. They all work two jobs. They don't have any other life chain. Really? It's just crap. In fact, the more poor most workers are, the higher their attendance is, for example, in Houses of Faith and a bunch of other places that they make time for because it matters to them. So part of what I'm trying to argue with whole worker organizing is the principle of if it matters to the workers, it should matter to the organizers is like a core principle for me. So I had a great example of this like two weeks ago. 
with some nurses where, one, people say things like, oh, nurses, you know, I mean, they're, they're a higher class of worker. They're professionals. They're, they're, not, they don't, they're not churchgoers. They're not all these things. And I'm always like, it just means you haven't asked them because it's just not true, right? So, so when we ask workers, they have lots of connections in their community. So a couple of weeks back, I was doing a little training about this with some nurses in Philadelphia. About, about a minute into this conversation where I was showing them the relative power of some of the houses of faith in their community, one of the nurses raised her hand. She's a leader in her unit, labor and delivery nurse. She raised her hand and she said, hey, uh, you just put the Black Pastors and Ministers Clergy Coalition up on one of those slides I'm looking at in terms of power. And she's like, my, I, I think my pastor is the head of that. I just texted him and he said he'd love for the nurses to come in and talk about their contract campaign. So can we go meet with him? There's like a text. She's texting her very powerful minister in the middle of a training session. And I just start laughing out loud. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, I've just analyzed that this guy is one of the most powerful people in the region. And she's texting with him. And after the session, I said, so why didn't it ever occur to you to talk to your minister about the contract fight? She said, because no one ever told me to talk to my minister about the contract fight. Unless we help people make the connections about this work, like, we guide them to think the contract fight is a fight at work. That's such a failure of our model. It's like when we were winning in the 30s and 40s and when the civil rights movement was winning, it's because these were movements of dignity for the whole community, not my contract fight is a contract fight at work. It's so limiting, right? It's like we're talking about improving patient care in a whole region. Why are we not talking to our ministers about that? To me, that's what whole worker organizing is. Again, it's I maybe put a label on it, but it's not a new idea. Part of what I'm trying to argue in the book is like it's a very old idea, and it and it worked um, really well in this country. And so the sort of bifurcation that we've made between the idea that there's like a community group and then there's a workplace worker group and that they should like have some top-down alliance between the top staff of the two organizations isn't working. And it didn't work in the 30s and 40s. And what does work is when we appreciate that workers are complicated, smart, interesting, textured are there some couch potatoes among them? Yeah, sure, of course, like they're humans. You know what I mean? But like m most people who step up and make the decision to make a change in the workplace, it turns out have lots of connections in their community that we just fail to help them make the connection to. Speaking of community labor alliances, um, you spent some time deconstructing the history of the movement and the influence of a person that many see as sort of a sacred cow kind of figure in the movement, uh, Saul Alinsky. And you provide a critique of his tactics as well as his overall, you know, vision of what organizing should be by talking about how he sort of neglected certain ideas about how certain structural forces operate in workers' communities. Can you talk about what you see as some of the blind spots of Solinsky's approach and how that has still managed to affect organizing today? I want to start by saying I feel like I've been getting, like, resoundingly attacked by a few hardcore Alinsky guys in the movement for several years since I began to issue this critique. And I want to thank them uh, publicly for getting me sharper and sharper about it because it's pissing me off. So I'm an Alinsky-trained organizer by origin. So for me, when we find weaknesses in our models, we should be examining them and not freaking out if someone critiques them. I think... Because I started as a community organizer when I was young, I'm okay, student, whatever, student leader, blah, blah, blah. But then I was trained by Midwest Academy, and then I became a community organizer for years, and then, you know, whatever, and then I was a Highlander, and then eventually I came into the labor movement because um, nothing was quite right in a bunch of the settings that I had been doing my work in when I was young. There, was, there, were, there were things that were unsatisfying to me, principally that we weren't building enough power to win the kind of changes that people needed. So part of what Alinsky did wrong and part of what's wrong about Alinsky-ism, sort of as we understand it today, 
is the very idea that he created the idea of community organizing as something distinct from workplace organizing, which is just not what the best organizers who actually taught him whatever he learned about organizing were doing, right? He was learning from this guy, Herb Marsh, like one of his big mentors in Chicago, turned out to be the head of the, at the time, Communist Party, which was a very different Communist Party back in the early 30s, right? It was a smart party that was doing really good work. And they had methods, and they were learning them from people overseas. And, you know, the Ruther brothers and all sorts of people went to the Soviet Union to get trained way back then, all these secret things that happened. But anyway, so, like, they, there was an organizing method. And the organizing method basically said for the working class to have power, the only place that they can exercise it really strongly is against, as against their employers. That, that means workplace organizing. They're only going to be able to do it if they have the full weight of their coworkers and their community behind them. And so the structure of how good working class organizing was happening in the 20s, 30s, and 40s was very much by workers embedded in their community, struggling as a whole community and a workplace against their employers. And so Linsky is like watching this. He's learning from it in Chicago, where, where some of the best organizing was going on in this country ever was in Chicago in terms of the trade union movement and how strong it was and how good they were in the 1930s. Zelensky's studying this stuff. He's watching it. And then I think he takes the wrong lessons from it. He, he basically decides several things. One, oh, unions are strong at work and they're always going to be strong. They've sort of become strong and so they'll just be strong. Like missing the most fundamental idea that organizing is an endless process, right? Like it's constant. And the minute we stop doing it, our power begins to recede. And two, he, he says, I'm paraphrasing this now, but something like I wanted, you know, to do for, you know, poor people outside the workplace what unions were doing inside the workplace, which is a total bastardization of the concept of power right there. Because the point about the CIO and the industrial-minded unions was the idea that the workers who had strategic power in the workplace, if I was modernizing it for today, I'd say, you know, the engineers at Boeing had to team up with the line workers at Boeing with the people who didn't have as much strategic power in the workplace, but they had the numbers, right? So the idea was you had to take the most strategic workers and align them in one organization with the, with the highest bulk, with the, with the majority of the workers, and together they could exercise power against their employer. So then he, like, steps outside and says, I'm going to try and do for poor communities what the unions are doing. Like, then you're taking the most strategically weak people in society and trying to say that you can build a power block for them outside of their strategic working class allies in the workplace. Like, it just, I think we can't be good strategists if we don't really understand power. So I'm fairly obsessed with models of power analysis, and I spend a lot of time doing it when I'm organizing in campaigns. It's like, it, so it's like he missed the whole social structural conditions of what really made the CIO and the unions that he was looking at really powerful. And I think we're living with the legacy of that today. I mean, if you look at, starting with Buckley versus Vallejo, which everyone kind of misses, and then you go to Citizens United, and then you go to McCutcheon. Like, if you look at even just the moment that we're in electorally, and people are like, oh, why is Trump doing so well? Oh, why are, are why, why in the midterm elections we keep getting our asses kicked? Like, the, the, the structure of what the Supreme Court has done to our electoral math in terms of corporations putting in go endlessly unaccountable gobs of money right now is part of why we're getting our ass kicked in so many electoral arenas. And we're never going to be able to compete in this arena purely. Like that, the whole point of the brilliance of the CIO and their offshoots in the 30s was understanding that in a quote-unquote free market economy or the theory of one, the place where the working class has power is up, is up against our employers directly in the workplace. And I think that is more true today than ever. And 
if people don't see that after looking at the electoral disparities and the amount of money that a Koch brothers can put in, the idea that workers couldn't better take on Koch by being able to strike his factory versus like in some electoral arena, it's just I, I'm, I, I, I can't figure out what people are missing about the power analysis today. But so that, like Alinsky, Alinsky just complicated it. Like, and he and he had he had this he had this idea, you know, that you didn't have to be ideological, like because because the unions were doing all the quote unquote hard work of organizing in the economy, and so he just assumed he was going to play a supplemental role. Talking about contemporary workplace struggles, um, you say one of the major problems um, is that there's a separation between the organizers, the staff organizers, and um, the, the professional staff and the workers themselves in the rank and file. So um, how might this play out today in a situation um, under the approach that uh, you see as championed by uh, Rolf and Stern? Um, and, and how has that affected organizing, particularly with the growth of this kind of messaging and consultant class? So let me just, I don't think the dividing line is staff versus member. If I was alive in the 30s, someone would have told me the way you're going to do this, Mac Libby, is you're going to go into that factory, you're going to embed, you're going to take a job there, and you're going to be cadre inside the plant. But you're going to be doing a lot of the same work we do now. That's my argument. So the strategic position of the organizer is partly has partly changed today. I don't think that's the problem, though I have that debate with a whole bunch of leftist men. I don't, to me, that's not the issue, is the strategic position of the organizer. The issue is, and are they full-time and paid or not, that, that is not the debate for me. The debate is like, what the hell are those people doing? Like, what is the role of the staff person? And what is the role of the rank-and-file leadership? That's, for me, the crucial question. So in the Rolf Stern model, the staff actually make all the decisions, pretend they don't, you know, sort of use this rhetoric of who the leaders are and what they do. But there's no real pretense that workers are actually making any real decisions. And I contrast that really intensely with, just for sake of argument, like what was the national philosophy of 1199, which has been a little bit bastardized now in New York and other places, but it still holds true in 1199 New England and Northwest and any number of places right now where people were trained by the same organizers years ago. For me, it's it's a question of agency. And David Rolfe understands his job as being the hero of the workers. Here's an example. There was a march that was covered by, like, I think the New York Times, right when SeaTac won and Rolfe was going to lead a march up to Seattle to campaign for the 15 there. The entire march, 150 people, the entire thing was full-time staff, which no one knew because they weren't allowed to say. They always put on their T-shirts and marched, right? Like, that's a problem. So, and secret deal-making, the whole thing is about just a handful of staff who think of themselves as geniuses and wizards acting on behalf of the working class. And that's really different. It's not a question of full-time staff or not. I've played the staff role my whole life. And my relationship to rank-and-file workers is fundamentally different than that in every campaign I've ever run. Like, I say to them, I'm your coach. That's all I am. Every time I think about it, when I watch a good sports team, it's like the coach isn't playing basketball. But people acknowledge that coaches play this really central role in the lives of really successful, just say, let's just say, a basketball team in America. Like, because it's a team, you got to build a team, you got to coach them, you got to pull out the best thing from each person, you got to know what each player can do. Like, good organizers in the tradition of the 30s are just good coaches. Everything I'm asking workers to do as an organizer, I'm explaining every aspect of it. 
here's what's going to happen when you go in the room today and you do this with the employer. Like, here's what I think is going to happen based on my past experience for the last 25 years. It may go south. It may go that way. But here's what should happen if you do the following five things. And David Ralph and Andy Stern weren't doing any of that. They're just off taking care of problems. They're like solving problems for the benighted poor masses. And what real organizers are doing is building an army in the field of a high-capacity team that learns to act on their own once they've gone through one serious struggle. Because what we've got to leave behind, if we're trying to rebuild a base of people who can contest with capital, we're way too small right now. Like our, we're just way, we like we have like just a bunch of random millions of people who are pissed off out there with no strategy or theory of how to actually rebuild their base. And good organizers are trying to coach people to become themselves really good organizers. And not everyone has the same capacity. That's part of why I talk a lot about this thing called organic leader identification. Like, there's a bunch of people in every workplace who actually are the natural organizers. Our job is to find them and teach them. Because when I leave, they're going to actually be able to continue governing their workplace really radically differently than they ever did before. The first contract fight is where we teach governance skills. Like, it's where we actually teach the skill to these workers who just made it through round one of how they're going to sustain a high-powered workplace when we do eventually walk away. You're envisioning an alternative to the new labor sort of standard approach um, by going back to some of the more historic forms of grassroots organizing. How do you see that playing out in a model that you look at that's more contemporary, that is very much rooted in the community, um, which is not a union, but which is Make the Road New York? Um, And I was wondering if you can tie that into the broader economic context that we're looking at as well when it comes to what it means to be organizing in the labor movement today. Sure. I mean, here. so here's what I think. One is, it isn't like mobilizing isn't something we have to do, by the way, right? Like, of course, we have to do lots of mobilizing. The problem is that we're not doing the base building, right? That, that then grows the base from which we're mobilizing. So make the road New York. First of all, I think that they may be going through some changes, like since the period that I was staring at the work that they were doing, which was like 2010, 2011, 2012. So there's always going to be some workers who have less structural power who are low income and who do need a way to sort of come together. And part of what I thought Make the Road did really well was they were taking people who worked in very temporary, very sort of, you know, what someone would use the word precariat, like um, workers who don't have a steady paycheck but who need to find a way as a class to come together and actually try and build some class power. Part of what I'm saying is, and make the road alone isn't going to do it. And make the road alone, I argue in the book, wouldn't win half of what they're winning if they weren't embedded in a strong labor movement in New York City and New York State. So part of what I thought they were doing really brilliantly, it wasn't playing the hybrid role of the community to the labor. They were actually organizing among a lower income, less able part of the working class. Lots of undocumented folks, right? And figuring out actually how to play with class power by engaging in some of the same methods, the the labor sort of contingent within Make the Road that I was paying a lot of attention to, they would do really interesting stuff. Like a worker would walk into a meeting and describe how their boss just ripped them off. And the first thing that Make the Road would do would be to say, okay, first tell us your story. B, who's going to get together and commit to go march on that employer, you know, three days from now? And we're going to go outside with a bunch of signs, and we're going to go take a bullhorn, and we're going to go demand immediate action from that employer right now because they just ripped off someone in their paycheck. Like, 
that's direct action organizing. That's not a mobilizing approach. So step one, they would do that. Then they would eventually move on to, like, you know, a wage theft claim if they couldn't win it straight up. That actually is real organizing. That's an approach to real organizing that isn't just advocacy. Advocacy might come later in their model when they realize either, A, they've got a whole class of workers being screwed by some boss, or, but they always start first with actually teaching the workers the most effective way to go have power, which is to get a whole bunch of folks together and go confront the employer. Like, and then if that doesn't work, all right, let's go to step B, you know what I mean, and which is what labor unions' approach should be in the workplace. Let's do some direct action. If we've won a contract already, let's do a whole bunch of direct action. Usually it's going to work if we do it right. But if for some reason it doesn't, then there's this fallback to a thing called a grievance and a contract and arbitration. But, like, that's so not what most unions do, and it's so not what most, quote-unquote, community groups do. They mostly just do advocacy and wage theft claims and blah, 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 and make the road was, like, actually running, and I, I hope still is, running, like, really cool direct action approaches to the work, actually empowering people, actually getting them together to tell their story, figure it out, get a bunch of coworkers together, and go take an action on someone. Um, and were they also doing mobilizing work? Of course, sure. But, I mean, again, I, everyone who's a good organizer is also doing some mobilizing work. When Make the Road sent 45 buses to the 2006 immigration march, that was more buses than any union in the country sent. Like, that means you're actually base building. <laughs> it's like, there's like some stunning evidence to actual base building work. So I think, I think Make the Road, in the work that I was observing, did some really terrific work. And that was Jane McLeavy talking about her new book, No Shortcuts. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG, where we point out the articles that we wish we had written but did not. My ARG for this week is by Zoe Williams in The Guardian. It's called Europe Isn't Just About Trade, It's About Humanity Too. And of course it is about Europe, but it could have been about the U.S. in many ways. Williams takes us to the harrowing scene currently unfolding at the jagged maritime border between the U.K. and France at the Port of Calais. Technically, as we've reported earlier, it's on French soil, but it's seen as a pathway to Britain by many. So Williams hits on two strands of the immigration debate that are playing out both in Europe and here, um, and ironically, they're almost never discussed as part of the same crisis. Williams talks about the deep misery that is experienced by children and families at the Port of Calais, namely in the notorious shanty town known as the Jungle, um, their lives have been on limbo as they wait by the roadside. Uh, many of them have lost hope after months or even years of waiting for some kind of safe passage into the UK. And um, it's a really powerful testament to just how desperate people are to get into Britain. Um, and also how profoundly segregated and hated they are in France. Many of them have little chance of actually obtaining asylum in France. Basically, they're all at an impasse, and now that the camp is finally being demolished, um, there will be a vetting process to determine their eligibility for official refugee status. Many will, unfortunately, be ordered deported. Many of them will be dismissed as mere economic migrants. Uh, supposedly, these are the migrants who are escaping only poverty 
as opposed to a so-called real humanitarian catastrophe like war or some sort of persecution. But Williams questions this bifurcated morality, and she challenges the whole ethical foundation of what many today call Fortress Europe. The current response, she notes, is simply to throw some money at the problem to make sure it stays somewhere else, pretend the conflict is smaller than it is, or larger than it is, or closer to conclusion than it is, or more never-ending than it is, anything to make it none of our business. And that's rooted in this idea that the European Union is mostly about commercial rather than humanitarian interests, she writes. But she goes on, quote, Increasingly I find this dichotomy between the grand language of universal rights and the base but profitable self-interest of free trade to be false. Whatever your formula is, however many millions of euros a deal will generate, whatever jobs it will create, sooner or later you will come down to the unit of a human being. She points to the province of Belgium, Wallonia, that has rejected the EU-Canadian trade agreement. She says the rational may converge with the irrational. Some might reject it because they are worried about corporate hegemony. Others might be yearning for a time when you only eat a pig if its ancestors knew yours. But the prescription will be the same unless you find a kind of free trade that distributes its fruits in a way that people can stomach, they will vote against it. Short of giving up on democracy, this means formulating an idea as mutually agreed as your trading block is wide of what fair distribution looks like, which cannot be done without an idea of equality at its foundation. It is hard to imagine, having got that far, a Europe that had framed its citizens as equal and yet offered no dignity, succor, or fellowship to the rest of the world, unquote. So she touches there on this core of humanity that is guiding, yes, even our trade policy, but sadly, the entire equation has been twisted under the current EU regime, where it is actually uh, solely down to commercial interest, and the common humanity aspect is forgotten. And whether that's because people are lazy after so many decades of peace, or whether they're just increasingly closed off from the rest of the world and the crises under unfolding around them is unclear. What is clear, however, is that the children at the Port of Calais are in need of help, not vetting, and we're not offering them anything. Williams attacks these two sacred cows of the EU that will have prosperity within the Union and that we can somehow keep ourselves protected from the economic and social turmoil just outside the external borders of this shared territory. We know that neither of those is true, and in a place like Calais, where all of society is essentially broken down into its most savage and tragic state, it's a living example of what happens when we combine Eurocentric economic protectionism with the political dehumanization of the rest of the world. But now, EU citizens are finding themselves bankrupt as well not only materially, but morally. Williams concludes, It couldn't be more vital, as we discuss what kind of trade relationship we want with Europe, to remember that trade is just a subset of a deeper question. What kind of people do we want to be? We talked about the encampment at Standing Rock in North Dakota, which is blockading the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline on episode 113, when I had just returned from covering the camp for Moyers and Company. I talked about the fissures within the labor movement on this issue, and as the tension continues to ratchet up at the camp, with water protectors arrested daily in a new camp directly in the path of construction, I'm returning to the subject for this week's ARG. Friend of the show and dissent contributor Trish Kajla has a, a piece up at Jacobin called The Standing Rock Split, where she discusses the question of labor's position on climate change and on the Dakota Access Pipeline in particular. 
For those of you not familiar with her work, Trish is a historian of the labor movement and particularly of the period in its history when workers in the extractive industries like coal mining, for example, began to consider the impact of their work not just on their bodies but the environment in which they lived. It's that consideration that's often missing from debates around jobs versus the environment. As Trish writes, quote, workers in the building trades are nearly three times more likely to die on the job than the average American worker, and that figure is on the rise. In 2014, 874 construction workers were killed on the job, a 5.6% increase over the previous year and the highest number since 2008. Extractive industries are even more lethal. Workers in that sector die nearly five times more often than other workers. One hiring ad for a pipeline construction job in Colorado gives a taste of just a few of the hazards workers face. Employees must work in all weather conditions, including extreme heat and cold, and may at times be exposed to dangerous and or toxic substances. Trish further notes that Richard Trumka himself, of course, the president of the AFL-CIO, was a president of the United Mine Workers at the time when the company was laying off swaths of the workforce, pushing back on benefits and health care for the workers, and at the same time massively expanding their most environmentally destructive forms of extraction. She writes, as the companies beat back the union's gains, they also continued the environmental destruction of coal country, growing slag heaps, chemical spills that contaminated drinking water, pollution that degraded public health. The two processes went hand in hand. It is important for debates about the environment, climate change, and more to happen within the labor movement. All too often, the workers who depend on these jobs are forgotten as workers on the one hand, and on the other, ignored as members of the community that will be impacted by potential destruction. Trish notes, of course, the particular bind of native workers in extractive industries and around issues like the Dakota Access Pipeline. As more and more unions from within and without the AFL-CIO Notably, SEIU has joined the opposition to the pipeline. They're calling for workers to stand with the people of Standing Rock. It is important to keep having these discussions. What does the future look like if we continue to force working people to choose between their jobs, their health, and the world they live in? That is all we have time for today. Thank you, as always, for listening, and thanks again for your donations. We really appreciate all your support over the past 115 episodes, and uh, your donations lay the groundwork for the next 115. You can donate to us at DescentMagazine.org, either make a one-time donation or sign up as a sustaining member at $5 a month and get your sweet belabored tote bag. You can find links to everything we've discussed today at DescentMagazine.org. You can write to us at belabored at DescentMagazine.org if you're a teacher or a nursing assistant, on strike at Harvard or the Pennsylvania University System or a factory or a retail store or anywhere, really. You can also tweet at us at hashtag belabored. Thanks again, and we'll be back in two weeks. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Eight twenty five, we can't go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. <laughs>